Amen. Please be seated. Taking your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. On the occasion of several having professed their faith today and in recent weeks, I am stepping out of the book of Acts to preach a message to you on the faith we profess from Genesis 15. Let us pray and then read the chapter. Our gracious God and Father, we pray now that your spirit, like a good plowman, would come and break up the fallow ground of our heart that he, Lord, would make the soil good. Give us a good heart, Lord, to receive the good word so that it would take root in us, that it would indeed rise in strength and bring forth, bring forth a harvest of fruitfulness to your praise, to your, to your honor, to your will and work in the world. Gracious Lord, we pray that you, by your kind mercies, would not measure your grace now to us under your word by how well we have prepared. We confess, O oh Lord, we have not prepared as well as we should. But Father, we thank you and praise you that you are full of kindness to those who will humble themselves, to those who will indeed, by your spirit, succumb to a good poverty of spirit themselves, there is much blessing. So, Lord, help us, or we are beyond help for ourselves. Grant us to hear and believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 15, <clears throat> verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. 
but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word. Years ago, when I was a child in Sunday school, we learned a simple song that taught very deep truth. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And then you would start waving your arm. And then your other arm. And as you sang this one verse over and over again, this was the 1970s after all, you were soon marching like a pilgrim with a place to leave behind and with a place to go. The whole idea of that song was to make you happy and confident and joyful that you had a heritage that went all the way back to Abraham. In having Abraham as your father, you knew where you came from. You knew where you were going. You were going wherever Abraham was, is. You knew everything great about Abraham's life was because the Lord's call on him. Everything great about his life was because the Lord's promise to him. And you knew that by faith, Abraham followed the call and followed the promise. By faith, Abraham walked with the Lord and waited on the Lord to the very end of his life. The faith we profess as Christians is discovered, is learned, is deepened, is strengthened in the life of Abraham. We are never meant to get over the life of Abraham. There is not a higher quality of faith, nor is there a deeper experience of faith that leaves Abraham behind. This is why the scriptures say, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. Isaiah 51, verse 12. The New Testament scriptures say, Abraham is the father of us all, each one who shares the faith of Abraham. Abraham 4, excuse me, Romans 4, 16. In another place, it says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs 
according to the promise, Galatians 3.29. And in another place where scripture is describing why the eternal son of God took to himself a human nature, it says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Hebrews 2.16. You are all covenant children of Abraham if you are believers in Jesus Christ. What we confess and what we practice in our faith, it is found in the life of Abraham. To study Abraham is to study your faith. It is found not just in him as an example to us, but our faith is even the same substance as his faith. We share the faith of Abraham, the same divine power, And the same principle of grace that was at work in him is at work in you. So let me show you how the faith we profess is indeed found in Abraham. First, we profess the authority of the word of the Lord. You heard it professed this morning. One of the five membership vows is that I believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the word of God, not the scriptures. Let me be clear. The profession isn't, I believe the scriptures are the scriptures. I believe they are the word of God. Verse 1 of our reading this morning says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Whatever this vision was, it certainly was the presence of God and the power of God being mediated through the speech of God. By grace, the word of the Lord came to Abram. By grace, he heard it. By grace, he recognized in it the authority of the self-existing one, Yahweh, the Lord. And therefore, Abram believed that word of the Lord. This is at the foundation of saving faith, recognizing the authority of God in his word, recognizing that in his word, the Lord declares to us the only true doctrine of salvation. As the word of the Lord came to Abram, it came to you. Listen to what Peter says about this very matter. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. God has not come to you in a vision, but he has come to you even so. His presence and his power have been mediated to you through his speech, the holy scriptures, which are the word of God. And his message of everlasting love And his message of salvation from sin's curse, that has made you a new creature in Christ through the Holy Spirit. So first, to state it again, we profess the authority of the word of the Lord. Second, we profess that God has called us out of a world under judgment. God has called us out of a world under judgment. Again, verse 1 in our reading. These are the words from the Lord. Fear not, Abram. 
I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. Now we have to do a little extra work here. Why must the Lord say fear not to Abram? Because instinctively, Abram had many things to fear. The Lord is not ministering to unreal problems in this man's heart. Instinctively, he feared many things. The world he lived in was full of the hostility and the pride of man. You know, I sat down last night to read the local Nina newspaper, and they had an article in there on all the crime statistics year-over-year comparison from 2023 to 2022 thus far. It made you wish 2023 was over already. I couldn't, I was just flabbergasted by the amount of hostility and pride in the statistics in my own little city. Crimes against persons and property. Abram lived in a world of hostility as well. In fact, if we went back to chapter 14 of Genesis, we would see Abram was just involved in the battle of the nine kings. Four against five. Abram's nephew Lot, a righteous man, had been kidnapped. So Abram takes 318 of his own trained men, he's not one of the nine kings, and he runs down into the battle to rescue his nephew. Why so much violence? Why so much greed in the valley of Sidim? Because the whole world is under divine judgment. Yes, sin is always the right answer, but it's not a complete answer. There's hostility among men because the Lord has turned men over to the curse that their sins deserve. We see this especially back in Genesis 11. There we are confronted with the events of the Tower of Babel. And what happened? Fallen man in his pride in his hostility toward God, determined to build himself a city. But not just any city. This city on the plain of Shinar would have a tower rising up into the heavens in order to restore religious life upon the earth. A man-centered religious life. Human determination from the cursed ground upward was to unite heaven and earth again. That's what Babel was about. What was lost in Eden was going to be remade by man at Babel. Let us make a name for ourselves. That was the motto of the project. But what did God do? He came down and confused their language, and he dispersed them from there all over the face of the earth, and the city was left to decay. What does this have to do with Abram, with his fear, with his faith? Well, it has much to do with it, because Abram is the first man God speaks to after Babel. In the midst of great severity, the confusion of language, the disbursement, there is this great mercy. The Lord begins speaking to one man. And you would think that maybe he's speaking to the cleanest man, the brightest man, the most godly man. 
Not at all. In the midst of the Lord's severe judgment, he begins speaking to an idolater from the land of Ur, whose name is Abram. In Genesis 12, verse 1, God abruptly calls Abram out of his idolatry and promises Abram that a new creation, a worldwide blessing, will come forth from Abram's offspring. And God specifically says this to Abram, Genesis 12, 2, I will make your name great. In other words, Abram, do not fear that you will be lost in the cursed ground under my judgments. Do not fear, Abram, that the hostility of men will sweep you away. Do not fear, Abram, that what was pursued in Babel by human effort, I will freely bestow that on you by grace, by divine promise. Abram, do not fear. I will give you a city that comes down from heaven, a city whose foundations cannot be shaken because they have been laid by God. And that's exactly what we find out in Hebrews 11 that Abram was looking to. This man, spoken to by Yahweh, right after Babel falls. And now in 15.1, the Lord is restating those same promises from Genesis 12. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abram and all of his children, count yourself in that number. We all need a divine shield and a divine reward if we are going to not live in fear. A divine shield so we will not fear the presence of evil. That's what a shield is about. A divine reward, so we will not fear the absence of good. That's what a reward is about. The love, the power, the promise of God delivers us from evil and brings us to what is eternally good. It is by faith, then, that we trust God's promise to be shield, to be reward to us, and by this faith we overcome the world. 1 John 5. We do not fear the world's threats, nor do we need the world's gifts, nor do we need its favors, because we have God as our shield and reward. God has called us out of the world that is under his judgment, and even should the earth give way, we will not fear. Because the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Abraham is our fortress, our city. You heard the men this morning profess that they were forsaking the world. You cannot forsake the world, friends, unless your fears have been answered by God. If you are afraid of the world, you must run back and look long at the shield and the reward that has been promised to all the covenant children of Abraham, then you can forsake the world with strength. And that will be what makes you useful to the world. You will never be of any use to the world until you forsake the world. And you can never forsake the world until your fears are answered. Why will you be useful to the world once you forsake her? 
because then you will stand in her midst and not be a mirror to all of her lust, not be a, a loop to all of her cravings, not simply be after the things she is after. You will indeed be headed towards a different land, a heavenly country. You will give, your whole life will give testimony that you are controlled by another hope than what controls the world. So we profess that God has called us out of a world under judgment because we are children of Abraham. Third, we profess that Jesus Christ is the promised offering, excuse me, is the promised offspring of the new creation. We profess that Jesus Christ is the promised offspring of the new creation. In verse 2 and 3 of our reading, we find Abraham anxious. And I'm going to come back to that. We find Abraham restless. Anxious and restless about how God is going to work out such an exceedingly great reward to him. What does Abram say? He says, I am childless. The closest heir I have is my house servant, Eliezer of Damascus. Great servant, by the way. Fetches a a dandy of a wife for Isaac. Verse 3, though, similar thing. You have given me no offspring. Why does Abram suddenly bring up the need for offspring while pondering God's promised reward? Because Abram knows it will be through an offspring of the human race that the curse due to sin will be finally broken. Abram, in some way, knows about the promise of Genesis 3.15, where God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring who will crush Satan's head while being wounded wounded himself is Jesus Christ. Abram has discovered this offspring will come from his own family tree. As Jesus said to the Jews in Jerusalem some 2,000 years after this scene in Genesis 15, Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. John 8, 56. Later in Genesis 22, the Lord speaks to Abraham on Mount Moriah and says, And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The Lord is speaking of Jesus. Even though it will be hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ will be born of the Virgin Mary, the offspring who brings the great reward to all who believe on him is Jesus Christ. It is he who reverses the curse. It is he who cancels the debts of sinners, nailing them to the cross in his body. It is he who brings about the new creation by his resurrection from the dead. He begins gathering a harvest of souls from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, by sending out his gospel through his servants to the four corners of the earth. Jesus is the offspring. Why is Abram 
Why does he have offspring on the brain in the promise of Genesis 15? Because he knows what Eve knew. And she knew what Genesis 3.15 said. So whenever Eve had a son, she said, Behold! Look! This could be the one! This could be the serpent crusher! Abraham is now thrilled that he shall come from his own loins. Christ brings the reward. Christ is the reward. And this is the cornerstone of Abram's faith in ours. Now, before I go on, I said we're going to touch briefly on the anxiety of Abraham. This anxious questioning in verse 2 and 3, it reappears in verse 8. How am I to know that I will possess the land? All of these questions from Abram show us that he is not yet a man of great faith. He is a man of true faith, but of little faith. But what is wonderful to see here is how committed the Lord is to this beginner. The Lord does not withdraw from Abram, does not scold Abram for his wobbly faith. The Lord rather gives to Abram what is needed for stronger faith, more promises, even a special covenant ceremony and an oath in the second half of this chapter. All this to build up the faith of Abram. Beloved, this is true for all of us who are beginners in faith. The Lord does not withdraw from you because you are not one of the all-star believers, but he does press himself upon you. He wants to strengthen your faith. What was the Lord Jesus' most most common rebuke to his disciples? Oh, you of little faith. We are often of little faith. But look at the patience of the Lord. When the Lord calls a man, the Lord never withdraws from a man. Fourth, fourth, we profess our hope in God's blessing. We profess our hope in God's blessing to not come from ourselves, but from Jesus Christ alone. When we profess our faith, we are deliberately repudiating that God's blessing will come as a result of our works. Look at our reading again this morning, verse 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to Abram as righteousness. What we are hearing in verse 6 is Abraham's refusal to boast in his own works. Instead, he believes, he has faith, he trusts that God will do all that needs to be done for the great reward to be secured and consummated upon Abram in the future. Now, how can I confidently say that? That this is about the opposite of boasting in verse 6? Because the word boasting appears nowhere in the verse. Well, this is where we are so helped by the fullness of Scripture. Genesis 15.6 is picked up and exposited carefully three different times in the New Testament. 
One in James chapter 2, which I will not get into today because we got into that a couple years ago. The other two times, Galatians 3 and Romans 4. Genesis 15.6 really should be one of the dearest verses of Scripture to every Christian because it becomes so dear to the apostles. It becomes such a linchpin to their teaching and building up the church of God. So Genesis 15.6 again says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now listen to what Paul does with that very verse in Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you see Paul's exposition of Genesis 15.6? Paul is saying that Genesis 15.6 is the opposite of boasting in our own works to secure a reward from God. That will fail every time. Now, it's really quite something in my opinion anyway, that Paul says, for what does the scripture say? Look at those words, if they're in front of you. For what does the scripture say? That simple question should be taken into every church court until the end of the age. Every Roman Catholic church court, every Protestant church court, every Bible study, every private reading, what does the scripture say? This is the standard question for final authority. The scriptures tell us how we are to think. The scriptures tell us. And the scriptures are capable in the power of God to have us think in a way that is pleasing to God. You may know a hundred volumes of knowledge, a hundred libraries worth, but if you do not go to the touchstone of scripture, and say, what do the scriptures say? You don't know much. You do not know what pleases God. Paul is insisting that the scriptures are final in authority to tell us what a man should boast in, to acquire the righteousness that makes him acceptable before God. And what should he boast in? He should boast in the works of God, the promises of God, the doings of God, not his own doings. Galatians 3, the same Apostle Paul, again does a little exposition on Genesis 15, 6. Here it is. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Galatians 3, 5, and 6. And again, just like in the Romans 4 passage, Paul is setting against faith man's works, man's performance. Why is this important? Well, this takes us back to Genesis 15, 6. This is important because a man cannot acquire the righteousness God requires of him 
without faith. Without a faith that repudiates works. Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, said it as plain and clear as I think it can be said. Who are they who impugn the doctrine of faith only? This whosoever denieth is not to be counted for a true Christian man, nor for a setter forth of Christ's glory, but for an adversary of Christ and his gospel, and for a setter forth of man's vain glory. You heard the men this morning. They professed their faith, and in doing so, they repudiated their own works as something that they would put on the scale and ask God to weigh their works and give them some righteousness coins to help them gain favor with God, either in this life or in the final judgment. We must repudiate our works if we are truly giving honor to the glory of Christ and truly describing the faith of Genesis 15:6, Romans 4, and Galatians 3. Beloved, learn to repudiate your works. But do not repudiate them like a pagan, where you cease doing them. You see, those who repudiate their works for the glory of Christ alone are those who work the most zealously to serve the Christ. Paul makes the same argument about his own life. He says, no one has worked harder than me. And he's not saying this to get people patting him on the back. He's saying this to give honor to the gospel that has won him over, the gospel of grace. He says, no one has worked harder than me in service to the Lord, but it is all of grace. So what we are learning in verse 6 of Genesis 15 is that we must have reckoned to us, counted to us, a righteousness that can only be ours by faith in the promised word of God, when he says, I will do what needs to be done. And where has he done it? In the works of his son, Jesus Christ. Michael Horton wisely said, this faith is not finally accepting the goodness of the world or my own goodness, but receiving God's goodness toward me in spite of the way things really are with me and with the world. Abram is the ungodly man of Romans 4, where Paul says God justifies the ungodly. Abraham is not reckoned as righteous in Genesis 15:6 because God is anticipating a abundance of new works and obedience from him and takes those into account and pulls them into the scale and sets these future works on the scale and then says, yep, Abram, I see it. You're going to be a righteous man one day. No. He is reckoned righteous that day while he is ungodly. His sins are not counted against him and he acquires the righteousness that withstands the judgment. Beloved, this means that it is not mere forgiveness 
that withstands the last judgment. There must be a positive standing before God as well. We must have the righteousness that God is pleased with, that satisfies the living God. And there's only one man's righteousness who satisfies the living God in the last judgment. His beloved son, the offspring of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. These are the things we profess when we profess our faith. There is a repudiation of our works and a honoring of all of God's promises and works in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to close this message, but what is the takeaway point? What is the golden coin? What is the $100,000 bill? Do they make those? I think only on gospel tracks. I've seen that one. What's the golden takeaway from what you've heard today? Here it is. Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons have Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our covenant father. We thank you that we are covenant children. We thank you that we find in our ancient father all the heirlooms that are most dear to us. A profession of faith. Yea, a profession that indeed declares that we have escaped by your gracious call a world under judgment and we need not fear. A profession that, is in, that indeed says you have come to us in your presence and your power through the word. A profession that declares Jesus is the offspring who defeats a cursed earth and has already begun a new creation in his own body and blood. And indeed, O oh Lord, a profession that repudiates our works and lays hold of by faith alone all that Christ is and has done for us. Gracious God, we pray that we would endure in our profession, that we would indeed be strengthened when we are weak, and when we are strong, we would boast in the Lord, and we would go back to our brethren and help them. Lord, we do pray that we would indeed stay close to our father, Abraham, that we would study his life and so learn our own faith. We thank you and praise you for all the ways through the long history of men in which you have set down the many trails that lead to Christ for us. We thank you that we cannot turn to the right or the left in Scripture and find ourselves again on one of these trails that leads to the cross, to the empty tomb, to the throne of heaven. Thank you, Father, for the way in which you have prepared for us to hear the good news of salvation in Jesus, upon whom the end of the ages have come. In his name we pray, amen. Let us rise and sing.
Christ shall have dominion 